Hey, welcome. It's the Mend Podcast. Joe Roder here from Red's Fly Shop. Red's is bringing you this podcast. Hey, uh, unapologetic sales pitch. Don't forget to shop and order with Red's. We ship super fast, super free. Flies, rods, reels, tackle, apparel, waders, boots, fly lines. You name it, we got it. Um, if you've ever been to our store, uh, you know it's a big one. And uh, just so you know, most of our inventory is actually not even on the sales floor. It's in the basement getting shipped all over the world every day. Okay, so there it is. Today we're going to talk about light line nymphing. I'm going to be running solo on this thing so that I can stay on task and make super good use of your time. And the reason we're going to talk about light line nymphing is because Right now, it's fall, we're in this transition time, it's, we're officially four days into fall, September 26th, and what's happening is rivers are starting to really get their lowest and clearest of the year, water temperatures are dropping, uh, the fish are feeding far less on terrestrial insects of summer, like hoppers and ants and the sort are just starting to kind of expire, um, the trout will still continue to eat some bees, and other terrestrials that get a little sleepy and uh, wind up in the water. But uh, what happens is these fish wind up in this transition time where we were fishing really, really late in the evenings or early in the mornings, say during the summer. But what happens is uh, the water temperature cycle um, changes quite a bit. So during the summer, the water gets you know really warm, let's say 65 degrees. And uh, on its way up to peaking at 65 degrees, it stops by and it gets to 50 degrees and 52, 54, 5, 6, so on and so forth. As that water temperature climbs towards the, the peak of summer, it triggers a lot of hatches and activity along the way. And then finally, it gets you know real warm during the summer and the aquatic insect hatches stop being triggered and they grow quite stagnant in the months of like mid-July through the, say now practically, through September. So uh, there aren't a lot of hatches during the later part of summer on most streams. Uh, but what happens this time of year is that water is now dropping in temperature back down and it's, it's very low, very clear. There's not a lot of turbidity uh, or just activity taking place in the spring that triggers uh, what we call a nymphical drift. So the difference between, like, say, fall and spring nymphing is in the spring there's runoff and there's fluctuations in flow. Uh, there's generally more rainstorms and, and kind of hydraulic action taking place that's going to kick loose stonefly nymphs, uh, mayfly nymphs, worms. Uh, caddis larva and the sort, but in the fall, man, the flow is low. It's super stable. Uh, most places, you know, throughout the country, aren't getting a lot of fall rains. Um, you know, short of Alaska, you know, which would be a totally different deal than what I'm talking about here. Uh, so we're really relying on those hatches and just let's say uh, voluntary insect activity. Whereas, like in the spring. You know, a nymph could be living, you know, under a rock on the side of a rock, and then all of a sudden a hurricane shows up in the form of runoff, you know, spring runoff or rain, and it gets washed downstream and gets eaten by a trout. In the fall, that really just doesn't happen. Um, there's no surprises. The nymphs are really well hidden. Uh, 
The trout are still foraging on what they can get, but there's just not a lot of stuff free drifting in the water until it's triggered by hatches. Um, so what happens is that water temperature begins to decline. And uh, while we're sitting here, I'm actually going to look at, I'm going to get on redsflyshop.com, and I'm going to look at what the water temperature on our uh, home stream, the Yakima, is today. But as that water temperature drops uh, and drops and drops throughout the fall, a couple of things happen. Uh, one thing, it begins to trigger hatches as it cools. So I mean, I'm just going to name some bugs. It's going to be slightly different on other streams, but we tend to get uh, a significant blue-winged olive hatch uh, in the fall about this time of year when we get to you know rainy, cloudy days. And on those types of days or surrounding those days, we're going to have uh, productive fishing uh, on betis or blue-winged olive nymphs. The term betis and blue-wing uh, are generally synonymous. I believe blue-wing is a specific type of betis, betis being a Latin word, who cares, uh, but blue-winged olives. So ours are like number 18s and 20s in the fall, generally. But there's also what's called the mahogany dun, uh, a light cahill, and a variety of other just mayflies that don't really need names. They can be identified with size and color when you're on the river. The trout don't know the names. You don't have to know all the names, but there's going to be a variety of mayflies in the number 20 to 16 range on just most western rivers. And then there's going to be a few fall caddis, and there's going to be an October caddis. Uh, now, your dry fly fishing is definitely going to be better on days where it's going to be cloudy and kind of rainy and dark. And by the way, our water temperature uh, is dipping to about 58 right now. So as that water temperature goes down, and it's actually peaking pretty warm for the end of September, um, I'm not sure that this this is an automatic station that uploads to the Internet. I'm not, it historically reads a little bit high. Um, which is probably explains the big temperature swing because I think that's a pretty big swing. Anyway, it's getting up to like 64 during the day. So 64 to 58, uh, a little over 64. But anyway, it's it's dropping a little bit each day uh, as we get you know more into fall, and that's going to continue to trigger this insect activity. The other thing that triggers fall insect activity is the length of day. So whether the water temperature is really dipping down or not, uh, the nymphs know that it's kind of time to get moving. So, uh, you know, as the days get shorter and shorter, those nymphs are going to begin to get active. They're going to begin to migrate. Um, they're going to begin to position themselves in a, in a spot where they can freely float towards the surface and hatch for reproductive purposes uh, when they feel so inclined. So, anyway, that's kind of the backstory on fall fishing. Uh, the reason we're going to talk about light line nymphing is because the water is really low and clear and and the flows are pretty stagnant. They're, we're going to start enduring some freezes, especially in the mountains, and that's going to make everything even clearer. And really, it turns a lot of rivers into just a fall, a fall spring creek uh, environment, just gin clear water, uh, really controlled flows, very spooky fish, but very hungry fish. Um, that water temperature swing I was just talking about, what ends up happening is the fish really start to feed during the middle of the day. Very, very, very convenient for the angler, which is nice. So we can fish right during the middle of the day and have our productive fishing. And I'll be heading out uh, today. 
uh, guiding here, be taking off in about an hour and, and uh, heading for the river. And I'll be doing uh, a lot of light line nymphing. Uh, and then I'll, I'll shoot for some dry fly fishing when I see rising fish opportunity, and I'll talk a little bit about that. But to kind of stay on task, let me describe, you know, my uh, what my fall setup for guiding is going to look like. And, and guiding and wade fishing can be handled a little bit different in some perspectives. Uh, you got to be careful just trying to imitate the guides because a lot of times guides are fishing out of drift boats and, you know, are... <laughs> Uh, to make up sometimes for a lack of creativity. Uh, uh, it, it guides When we guide, we're doing a little different. We're covering a lot of water, so we're fishing for a lot of the real aggressive fish, and we're simply going to run indicators and float a long ways and cover a lot of water. Uh, in the fall, that often guiding doesn't work quite as well um, because the fish begin to get isolated into particular spots and pools um, due to low water conditions. Uh, when the river's a little higher in spring and summer, that, that's often the fish are a little bit more spread out. But um, don't always copy the guides. Sometimes we're going to run a lot more tractor-type patterns and, and heavier setups. Whereas a wade fisherman, you're going to wind up throwing, and please keep this in mind, when you're wade fishing, it's different because you're going to wind up throwing numerous casts over the same spot. So smaller flies, lighter setups, more delicate approaches are often more productive for wading uh, so that when you when you get to a spot you know that that has six fish in it that you're very careful and you're able to cast over those six fish numerous times with a delicate setup that isn't going to just push them out of there you try to lob a big old thingamabobber and a chunk of lead and a and a stonefly nymph over those fish you might get a fish on your first cast or two but after that the gigs up they're kind of on to you so I'll describe my setup, and mine would be pretty similar to that if I were wade fishing, and then I'll I'll kind of talk about, you know, what I would do guiding, you know, the next several days or a week in these conditions, or just throughout the fall, let's say pre-winter, let's say pre-Thanksgiving, uh, the, the information I'll give you today is going to be pretty applicable to, to that time frame, and then I'll talk about what I'll do if I were wade fishing, uh, it might be just a slight bit different than guiding, but uh, guiding-wise, light line nymphing. I'm going to run, uh, you know, 9-foot 4-weight rod would be the most ideal. Um, we're dealing with small hooks. Uh, I'm actually going to run a 10-foot 2-weight. I'm going to run my Echo Shadow 2 10-foot 2-weight with an indicator quite a bit this year for my clients just because the touch of that thing. Um, it's my Euro-nymphing rod, but it actually throws a New Zealand indicator extremely well. And a New Zealand indicator, which is, I'll describe all that for those of you that don't speak New Zealand, um, is a real light, it's a real fine indicator tied in with uh, wool. Uh, it can also be tied in with poly yarn. Uh, I use the kit part of the time if I think I'm going to be adjusting depth. I do that a little bit more in the wintertime uh, when it gets a little bit colder and I really got to find uh, the depth. But right now I'm running about four to five feet below that, you know, most of the time, anywhere from three to five. I'll kind of just vary my tippet length. The way I, the way I rig it up is is I have to adjust the tippet length in order to, uh, the way I rig it up right now, I have to adjust the tippet length to change for depth, but it's not, it's not as big a deal as it sounds like. But the New Zealand indicator, I'll tie in uh, just a strand of wool. You can do it with poly yarn, but, you know, get on, get online at Reds, just get that New Zealand wool, and you could take some, uh, think of your indicator for a New Zealand style setup as like a feather. 
uh, originally way back in the day uh, when you know guys started first dead drifting wet flies. I read this in a book somewhere. I have no idea what book it was, but they would use a feather to help track their wet fly, and that was kind of the first you know real you know stab at strike indicator fishing apparently from what I've read. Uh, anyway, so think of it like a feather. A feather moves delicately, and the nymph could actually kind of direct the feather because it's so light. But think about your New Zealand setups much more like a feather than a bobber. And uh, that way they can catch, you know, the nymph catches a current line ideally, and it can pull the feather where it needs to go. That's the, the ideal relationship that your nymph and your indicator should have. The indicator really shouldn't steer the nymph. Um, those two, those two items are going to be in different speeds of current. The nymph is going to be down lower in the water column where the currents are slower. And that's a really important concept to understand. And that feather needs to be able to be slowed down by the weight or the, the slower drift of the, the nymph. So I'll kind of leave, I could kind of go down a few rabbit holes there, but think about that New Zealand system. Don't, it shouldn't be just a wet clump, a big, big ball of yarn. Uh, it shouldn't be like a dish rag out there getting slopped around. It should be a real light, delicate feather. Uh, I recommend that you put some loon aquel uh, on that wool as well. And you may have to rebuild it and kind of tend it a few times during the day. And I just tie it in with a simple overhand knot. Uh, it's really easy to do. And once I tie it in, it's kind of tied in that at that spot for the day. I also try to keep that that indicator or that feather I want you to kind of psychologically think about that as a feather it's very it should be very treated very light and delicate when you're mending and everything but I try to keep that about four feet minimum away from the end of your fly line because the end of the, the fly lines where most of that drag comes from and you can start with like a seven and a half foot 4x or seven and a half foot 5x leader and put that that indicator right at the end of the taper Rio also has some indicator leaders that are pretty handy too that have a real aggressive uh, taper down. We sell all this at Reds. You know, like I asked you in the beginning, shop at Reds. Um, we we always appreciate the support. Uh, but the Rio indicator leader is pretty handy uh, as well. And um, so for for real real light line nymphing that. New Zealand system. You can use the kit if you want. The kit's great because you can adjust depth. If you're not real familiar with the water that you're going to be fishing, that adjustability is great. So the New Zealand kit's cool. I just tie mine in a lot of the time. Um, saves me a few minutes. And I adjust tippet length really quickly. I'm very, very fast with knots. Um, so for me to adjust the tippet length is okay. I don't usually have to adjust my indicator a great deal. But what you can do is you can take and you really want nothing but fine tip it from your indicator down to the fly. So you have a couple of options. One, you can, right below that indicator, you can tie in um, a perfection loop or a surgeon's loop and do it really small. You can tie in a junction. There's also a way to tie in a tiny barrel swivel. That's kind of that's kind of hillbilly, but uh, you can tie in a tiny barrel swivel right below that so that you have a, a junction where it goes from thick, you know, thicker butt section type line straight to tippet. Uh, you can do a triple surgeon's knot. You can do blood knot. You can do loop-to-loop -loop connection. There's a variety of ways, but in essence, you just want to accomplish getting 
do whatever knots you're most comfortable in. I have used all of those systems and they all work well. Just make sure that you you can handle them efficiently. Meaning when you tangle up your nymphs, snag up, break off, whatever, you can really quickly replace that tippet that goes between that junction, which that junction, if it were an inch below that indicator, that'd be great. It could be right at the indicator. You know, the max I would like is about six inches below the indicator because I really want direct connectivity between that indicator and that nymph. So, variety of junctions there. Uh, I tend to do a perfection loop most of the time, and then I do a loop-to-loop -loop connection with my fine tippet. And I'll run, most of the time, 4X fluorocarbon. Uh, right now, I'm running the Rio uh, Floroflex Plus. Uh, and again, it's on our online store. You can get all that there. But 4X Rio Floroflex Plus, it's a little bit stronger. And uh, we run that from the indicator down to the fly, down to the top nymph. And uh, I'm going to run, so I'm going to run about four feet straight down, just one chunk of 4X, four feet down. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to tie in a split yoke. Like I call it a split yoke, but it's basically I'm going to tie in a piece of 5X or even 6X fluorocarbon, depending on the particular nymph I'm using at that time. And I'm going to split that yoke. So I'm going to tie in a triple surgeon's with the piece of tippet going backwards, kind of back up the main line. And I'm going to have a split yoke. Now, I've got a couple of YouTube videos on how to do this. It's actually super simple. Go ahead and try it. Screw it up a couple times if you need to. But it's really quite simple. What I'm trying to accomplish is each nymph is tied on its own line and not in a, a tandem or a connected fashion. So essentially, my smaller fly is not just tied to the main hook of the bigger fly. Um, the, the two flies really don't act as natural when you do that. And I'm telling you, I just don't hook as many fish. I picked that up from, I noticed that all the competitive anglers that, you know, are fishing and fly fishing tournaments and such, uh, that are going to compete, they're tying that split yoke system. Um, as far as I can tell, they're doing that exclusively. And uh, if the guys are doing that to try to win some you know, trophies and whatnot, I figure it's probably, if they're all doing that, the writing's on the wall there, so might as well do it. So, split yoke system, my heavier fly, I tend to leave on that heavier line, and I want about maybe four to six inches is where I want that, that lighter tip at that 5X, 6X, 7X, if you're in really, very fine conditions and you're going to run a really small you know, unweighted fly. Um, four to six inches back up, I'm going to tie that junction in, and then that one I'm going to run longer. I'm going to run that maybe 12 to 16 inches. And I'm going to put a lighter fly, a smaller fly, on that lighter yoke that comes off of that split yoke system. And that just provides a little bit more flexibility uh, for that smaller fly. So essentially I've got, you know, what amounts to about an eight to 10 foot you know, leader total. Um, you know, I've got about four or five feet of butt section that comes down. The tapered leaders are nice. Uh, they mend really well. They're very, they're pretty supple. Um, but you can, you can build this just out of butt section material like a Maxima Ultra Green. Um, it's a little stiffer and such. Just a, you know, go ahead and use one of your older tapered leaders that's kind of retired where the tippet's kind of broken back on it is, is a great way to do it. Or just get some seven and a half foot 4X or 5X leaders. 
put that indicator in, New Zealand style wool. Uh, you know, make sure it's nice and even. Mine are about two inches long, typically, with um, an equal amount of wool coming out each side. And just make them nice and neat. Um, there's a lot to be said for having that, that wool nice and neat, um, nice square ends. Use some scissors to square them off. They tend to shed water a little bit better. And then just be prepared to either comb those out um, with an indicator comb. It's basically what amounts to a lice comb. Actually, it is a lice comb. Uh, you can you can pick those things out, kind of like an afro on each side, and they should be real even. And um, you know, put some Loon Aquel on there, and don't ever use that dry shake stuff on that wool. That's don't just don't do it. It makes it sticky and it gets dirty after a while. It just sinks. But that indicator really needs to be buoyant, fluffy, and very feather-like when you mend it around because your your mending strategy is I'll I'll get into it in a minute, but you need to be able to pick that indicator up and pivot that thing around. Uh, and then below the indicator, you're going to have some kind of junction. It's going to be, you know, little little teeny tiny, like the tiniest barrel swivel ever. I, I, that's one way to do it. I don't typically do that myself, but I've seen it done, so I'll mention it. I do a little barrel swivel often with thingamabobber type setups when I'm running little thingamabobbers in different conditions. Uh, and then... So some kind of connection, blood knot, triple surgeons, loop-to-loop, whatever. And then about four feet down, I'm going to have one fly that's a little bit larger. Then I'm going to have a junction that comes off that on lighter tippet, typically 4X and 5X or, you know, 5X, 6X, some kind of permutation of those two uh, leader sizes. Now, as far as flies go, my typical game is I... I don't scamp on the flies. Uh, I tie a lot of my own dry flies and stuff like that, but... Um, tungsten bead head jig let me see if I can get all this out tungsten bead jig head nymphs are the bomb when it comes to this kind of fishing Okay, at least for the what I call the anchor fly and that's going to be a heavier fly I run a lot of number 12's you know a 14 with a really heavy tungsten bead if you have a light line and a tungsten jig head nymph with a significant size bead and weight especially two flies. Two flies also add more mass to the end of the leader. You often don't need split shot, especially in the fall time, because the currents shouldn't really be that swift. Those fish are going to hold them walking speed water. It can be choply or riffly, but it's not going to be super, you know, fierce, you know, water. It's not going to push those flies through too fast. So I'll often run like a number 12. We got a bunch of them on our website. In fact, I'm just going to go type in, like, jig um, in the search bar. Let me see what that brings up. So that does a pretty good job. I've got one, oh, there's one bass fly in here. But um, basically, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven nymphs that came up just with the search jig. And I think there's a few other ones, too, that that maybe we didn't include in in jig in the title name. But um, those will work really great. we got the Rainey's Dirty Politician. That's a fantastic anchor fly. Rainey's Playboy Jig Head Tungsten Nymph. That's a great uh, lead fly. Rainey's the Stud Jig Head Umquas Tungsten Jig Head and Caddis Green. Uh, that's a fantastic clear water fly, by the way. Uh, if nothing's going on and you really got to pick apart a spot you know there to be fish, that Caddis Pupa with the Jig Head. That's all black. It's black bead, black body, everything. Super buggy. And then we got this yellow spot and this traditional pheasant tail flashback CDC 
uh, jig head. Anyway, those two are number 12, the yellow spot and the other one are probably the ones I use most commonly for my, my anchor. But I do like that Rainey's Dirty Politician. It's a great attractor. And I don't get, you know, I'd say I get less than 50% of my fish on that when I use it. But the way that hook is shaped and it doesn't snag the bottom for how heavy it is, it's just a really good anchor fly. And those suckers aren't cheap. Like I said, I don't skimp on that fly. Um, you don't lose a lot of them with those jig heads. So it's totally worth get a dozen of them, get two dozen of them, and treat them, pre- treat them like precious ammunition. Um, but I don't tend to tie those jig head ones. I just buy them. I just don't lose a lot of them. Um, but my anchor fly absolutely needs to be tungsten jig head system. Um, my, my lighter fly, so that pretty well covers that anchor fly. That's going to be my attractor. That's going to be my weight. Uh, my, my small fly that's going to come off that lighter uh, junction, that one doesn't necessarily have to have a jig head and be tungsten. If I'm having trouble getting down and I'm not making enough contact with the bottom, then yes, I'll run a you know a number 16 tungsten jig head, uh, one of those little tiny pheasant tails or that little caddis um, work good just for general you know general you know uh, I would say prospecting. But if I'm seeing a hatch like a betas hatch you know or a midge hatch, a midge hatch are very common after the first couple of freezes. I, I mentioned mayflies when I was talking about water temperature triggering hatches earlier, but there's going to be a lot of midge hatches in the fall. I'll run a zebra midge in a variety of colors, black bead, silver bead, doesn't matter. Uh, but we we have a really good zebra midge that we sell at Red. So I, lo- I love the shape of the hook and the quality of the hook on it. But those zebra midge in number 18s, 20s, they don't look like much, but that silver wire that's on the one that we sell tends to really show up and look segmented. And if you're not familiar with what midge larvae look like, just think about if you know what a mosquito larva looks like, if you've ever seen one in a rain barrel or, you know, pond or puddle or something like that. Uh, you can picture a mosquito larva, that is a midge larva. Uh, so you can see it, a lot of times they'll be black with white stripes on them. And that black zebra midge with that silver, that silver wire really does a good job of selling it. So the thing about midge that you need to know this time of year is if you can get on them with midge and kind of figure it out, you know, by that I mean what water speed are they living in and what depth are they living in and where are they living. And you hook a few on that midge, they generally eat a big volume of those midge. So when they see them come and they grab them. So they will, they will get chock full of those midge larvae this time of year, especially in the winter. And I'll do a different podcast specifically on winter fishing, probably Thanksgiving weekend-ish, you know, right in there, mid-November. But uh, that specific pattern, when you get on them with that zebra midge, and like I said, that silver, that light wire... Um, it can be, you know, red, I, I've had good success on red, olive, and black. Um, and I, there's not really any rhyme or reason to it. If I had to pick one, I'd probably pick black. In fact, if you go to our web store and you just type in zebra and click on the zebra midge, you'll see a black one in a trout's mouth. And you can really see those silver stripes on the side of that pattern. And uh, it's a really effective pattern as the lighter of the two flies. So... Uh, 
Zebra Midge, absolute go-to, great attractor or great prospector. It, it imitates a variety of things and get all three colors. Um, the Zebra Midge is great when paired up with like one of those really heavy anchor flies. Uh, the other one is there's uh, the other just general, and there's going to be betas hatches and blooming hatches pretty much everywhere all over the West. So if you uh, are heading somewhere, really consider stocking up on betas nymphs. They're very common. They live all over the place. There's one called the Ready Betas, and I'm just going to search in Ready in our online store, uh, make sure it's on there so you guys can see what it looks like or buy some. Uh, yeah, there's just type in Ready, um, and you could search by like nymphs, mayfly, mayfly nymphs, and all that. As long as we have it categorized right, you can see it. But if you type in the word Ready uh, or Betas, uh, Betas is B-A-E-T-I-S, you'll see that little tungsten ready betas. That one really helps you get down because it's a tungsten bead on a 20. And I'm gonna type in just betas and uh, see what comes up. Sweet, I've got I've got the two uh, betas nymphs that I wanted to show you here. So the other one, Solitude's tungsten beadhead betas nymph. And that one, if you're uh, in a very tough situation, there's a betas hatch present meaning you're seeing some, some betas on the surface. They're little olive guys, tiny 18s and 20s, and you're just not seeing them rise, and you know they're eating, you know, you're, you're fairly certain they're feeding on nymphs under the surface. That one is very natural. Um, the, the way that material is put on there, it's tied with peacock and then an overwrap. It just looks like the most realistic betas nymph, period. The ready betas is a little flashier, this guy's just very, very natural, and tying that on um, underneath, or excuse me, as that, that we're going to call it the dropper, but it's going to be the lighter of your two nymphs on that split yoke system. The other thing it works well as is a dropper underneath a, uh, a dry fly that's buoyant enough to carry it. So like underneath a bigger parachute Adams, or what we call split wing Adams at Reds, run that underneath like a number 16 split wing Adams, 12 inches under it. Uh, if you're not seeing fish feed, um, is a great way to do a dry, kind of a dry dropper system for targeting fish that you know are eating on a specific hatch, or you have a hunch they're feeding on a specific hatch, but aren't quite hitting the surface. Maybe you're just seeing a few swirls and boils just under the surface. So those are some of my favorite nymphs in the fall. Uh, the other one I didn't mention yet, uh, if you're having trouble kind of getting down into some of those deeper pools, or maybe the current is a little bit much for just your, your simple two-fly two system, you have a couple of options. One is you can put some split shot right above that junction knot uh, and help you get down. Uh, I generally will try an October caddis pupa first. Um, October caddis are very prevalent right now. The dry flies are very active in the evenings. Uh, that's a great one to twitch, skate, and move around. But during the day, if, if you are nymphing, uh, which I'm trying to keep this podcast more about teaching a, you know, finer nymphing skills, that October caddis is a very good one to run as your anchor fly. Uh, and it, they generally are tied with a pretty significant bead. And then you can tie that zebra midge or that, that beta nymph or, or what have you on as your lighter fly and use that October caddis to get down to one tip with that October caddises, I believe there are two varieties, if I remember uh, my studies correctly, there are two varieties of October caddis. We actually have both of them in our home river. 
and they're very similar, but one of them actually has the ability to swim and get to the surface and hatch on the surface. Uh, the other one crawls or uh, you know waddles his way out on the shoreline at the edge. So two varieties, one swims, one kind of crawls, and if you let that thing swing up at the end, and the way I like to describe it when I'm guiding is just simply let your drift end gracefully with that October caddis people, those fish will hammer that thing uh, on the way to the surface. So let that drift in gracefully with that October caddis. And if you just go to our online store, I'm just going to type in October and uh, just see you know, that stuff pops up so you guys can find it. Yeah, there's two dry flies or yeah, three dry flies and three pupa that pop up. All the pupa are good. Just get a couple of each and experiment um, experiment with them. The one called Deep October Caddis Peep is the fastest sinker, uh, I'd say, as Conehead. Uh, the Solitude's Beadhead, uh, October Fat Ass Caddis also has a Conehead. Both those are going to sink quick. and then, Which I'm not saying is necessarily a good thing. Uh, but get a couple. Get the Solitude's Beadhead October Caddis people with the standard Beadhead because that one doesn't sink quite as fast. Sometimes having that thing a little bit lighter so it levitates and kind of moves around in the current a little bit more naturally can be good, more of a neutral buoyancy concept. Get at least a couple of the heavy ones and a couple of light ones. And uh, the the Solitude's Beadhead October Fat-Ass Caddis Poop is a killer summer steel, doubles is a killer summer steelhead uh, nymph as well. D- totally different topic. but uh, Anyway, use that October Caddis to really, really help you get down. Now, you've, you've kind of got your setup figured out, let's say. Uh, you got some midge pupa. Brassies are also a really good idea uh, in the fall. Uh, all of brassies, uh, gold brassies, red brassies, um, that's kind of the pattern that's been long forgotten, I'd say. But that black bead olive brassy, that thing's a little killer. Um, little tiny guy. Uh, if you know there are fish there, uh, it's... Absolutely deadly. It's not flashiest, meaning if if I were searching, like say I was guiding and fishing along on the move, um, you know, I probably wouldn't fish it a ton. If I were just cruising along on the move trying to to find fish, that all the brass, he's pretty low key. But when I'm standing in a spot and I know there are fish there, absolutely I would fish that. So. And there are we we sell non-beaded brassies, beaded brassies. It's probably one of the best kept secrets is uh, a brassie. Zebra midges, brassies, uh, and little beta snimps are going to be my go-tos for my my smaller fly in the fall. I'm I'm probably going to not use very many lightning bugs. Not going to use very many copper johns or flashy nymphs uh, this time of year. I'm going to run one larger, heavier nymph to to make contact with the bottom, hit a few rocks with it, and uh, get my fly down but I'm going to run pretty small a lot of 18s a lot of 20s on that lighter fly so let's just say you got your your light line system kind of set up you got the right tackle you get you know nine foot four weight rod nine foot three weight even uh you know nine foot five weights absolutely fine if I had my choices I'd go for that like nine foot four weight would be in a fast action like uh you know, like Loomis NRX, uh, you know, any of the Sage, you know, Sage X, you know, uh, the Winston Pure uh, in that that arena as well would be absolutely fantastic. Any of those kind of high end nine foot four weights are perfect for this because setting the hook with a small 
uh, small fly like that and keeping them hooked up, generally those lighter lines are better. And when that fish starts peeling line across current, um, you know, smaller cross-sectional lines like, you know, a three-weight line is compared, and I'm going to go just kind of at the extreme end, but like when a fish drags a three-weight line through the current, it's a lot different than dragging a six-weight line through the current. It can drag a six-weight line through the current and tear the hook out. Three-weight line, much more likely to keep them on. So uh, you lose a little bit of casting range, but I'm generally throwing a real light indicator in small flies this time of year, so I want a lighter rod. Uh, and nine, nine foot for the mending and the high sticking and roll casting and stuff is very nice to have. Um, like I said, I'm going to be running my 10 foot two weight Echo Shadow um, a lot. So and if you haven't watched or listened to my stuff already, I'm just nuts about that rod. I just think that thing's absolutely awesome. Uh, and then I run a Sage uh, Euro style 10 foot four weight quite a bit as well um, but I'm actually using an indicator on that one it's their euro style nymphing rod but I'm running an indicator on it quite a bit it's a little bit heavy for euro nymphing in my opinion big difference between that and that echo two weight and that uh, sage four weight ESN anyway so you, you got your gear figured out you're set up you're looking for a place to fish now there's going to be a big difference between uh, wade fishing and boating uh, now, if you are boating, I really encourage you to investigate using personal watercraft. Uh, pontoon boats are just great. Uh, they're they're available. Hell, get on Craigslist for that matter. Probably see 50 of them if you live in an urban area. Uh, but uh, pontoon boats are fine. But if you're really if you're really shopping for the right boat, and you really want to take this serious. That Watermaster, uh, we rent them at Reds. In fact, for the rest of the year, if you book online for a personal watercraft rental. Uh, it's got to be midweek because we're not as busy. You can get 50% off personal watercraft rounds. So you can come rent a Watermaster for like 50 or 60 bucks, and that includes your, that's, that's damn near the cost of a shuttle, and we include transportation. So it's basically free to get the rental because we want you to come in and buy a bunch of flies and leader and then get a burger and a beer uh, afterwards at the restaurant if it's a Thursday or Friday. But enter promo code DIY rent. If you book that personal watercraft online uh, or mention the promo code DIY rent, uh, if you're booking one of these things. But that personal watercraft game, like with the Watermaster, is awesome because when you see a shallow gravel bar on a ledge and you see a nice brown to green color change, you can just put your feet down, row over there, don't use fins, don't even fish while you're moving, just put your feet down and stand and the boat will kind of hang around your legs super light sounds awkward it's not and you could fish right there standing with that boat just kind of hanging at your feet and you can fish and that way you don't got to worry about anchoring your boat you don't got to worry about dragging it up on shore and especially when you get done nymphing your way down a ledge you don't have to go back and get your boat you sit your butt down start rowing down to the next spot super easy so investigate that watermaster thing I do not see nearly, nearly enough do-it-yourself anglers using those things. It's frameless. It breaks down. In the, it can fit it in the trunk of a Prius, oars, boat, everything. It's, it's amazing. So it's not going to take up a bunch of room in your garage. Heck, you could even put it in your closet if you had to. But the Watermaster thing is awesome. Rent one at Reds, give it a shot, and then buy one. So, But let's just say, you know, whether you're Watermastering, 
or you're wading, you're fishing over uh, isolated fish, you're really looking for edges, brown or green color changes, choppy water, something with some kind of rolling chop in the fall. In the winter, we're going to be fishing a lot more slick, flat water, but you're looking for those edges. The fish are still going to be in the heads. You know, the generally in the fall, they're still going to be in the top half of the run. And uh, you're really going to focus on where you know there are fish. Don't, don't cast in anything you're not confident in. The best way to describe it is the water's going to be moving at just a walking speed or slightly faster, a little bit of chop. You can see there's a bottom, but you can't quite identify the bottom. You don't want to spend a bunch of time out there, you know, throwing into the abyss in 8 to 10 feet of water. It's just too hard to get a little fly down to the fish and too much to ask the fish to come get it. So anywhere from 18 inches to 4 feet of water, that's your zone. Look for choppy, walking speed water, and uh, something, something where you can just barely identify the bottom. And uh, once you hook a fish there, you get a bite or even a suspicious bobber drop. Pay attention to that. There's going to be, generally the fish are going to be potted up this time of year. Fish over that again, and then remember what that water speed looked like, what it felt like. You know, how fast was the current against your legs, all that kind of stuff. Was the river going downhill? Was the river really flat right there? Try to remember what that looks like. Pay attention to every bite. If you're fishing boulders, generally want to focus not on the real turbid water right downstream of the boulder in the fall, but anywhere from 5 to 45 feet below significant boulders in that slick water that's surrounded by a little bit of choppy water. Uh, so boulders don't fish right up tight to them most of the time, fish downstream from them in that slick water where that hydraulic is broken up. Um, so probably the last thing uh, that I'll talk about is just really quick about mending. Um, that indicator system that you have, the, the reason we want that thing so light and delicate, we really want it perched delicately up on the surface, you need to be able to mend and pivot that indicator around very delicately. And that's why we want good floating fly lines, not that same old crappy one that you've had on your reel for like five years. Get yourself a decent floating line. Your time is precious. Make sure that fly line floats good, it shoots good. It's got enough rigidity to it that it can actually throw some bends. And that's also why we buy fine fly rods with good high energy tips so you can actually take and kind of wind up and use the tip of that rod to flick that line out towards the indicator and pivot that indicator around a little bit. So we need to be able to mend that indicator so that it goes over to the same speed of water uh, that the fly is in. So we want to be able to get that rod up real high and just use the tip of that rod to flick that line out there and actually move that indicator around and think of it like this and I can it's almost feel like I can explain this better on a podcast than a video because a video has got to be so short but think of it like this we're trying to generate slack and allow that nymph to drop under the indicator we want that fly to be on perfect slack and drop under the indicator most people mend and they tighten they, they think they're mending good because they're treating their indicator like a dry fly. You are not fishing the indicator, you're fishing the fly. So when you mend, you should also be mending that indicator to promote slack right to that fly. So try to remember that we're generating slack to the fly, fresh fly lines, good nine foot or longer rods um, for that mending. Get the hand and the rod up high. 
uh, learn how to high stick properly where the rod is actually parallel with the water with your hand up high. Uh, and then learn how to feed line really good. That's also the reason we like rods with soft tips. Um, you know, the lighter rods, the four weights, the three weights, the two weights, five weights, of course, you know, absolutely go use your nine foot five weight. Six weights are a little bit much for small nymphing because we want to be able to feed line very delicately without having to ask a lot. Uh, that that line is going to be on vacuum tension, and the more flexible that rod is, and that's part of the reason we like kind of medium fast action rods. It doesn't have to be an extreme fast action uh, rod. Is line feeding is made a little bit easier with a flexible rod. So um, there's something to be said for just the sole of a fly rod and how much it flexes and when it flexes. And that's why we pay so much for these better rods is because little things like that tip mending and line feeding are just made easier. So uh, hopefully these tips help. Uh, get yourself set up. Get out there. The next month is going to be the best light line nymphing of the year. Uh, don't be greedy. Uh, you don't have to catch every damn fish in the river. If you catch 10 of them in the morning on nymphs, you know, try to get them on dry flies. Try something else. Take good care of the trout too. Get yourself a catch and release tool if you don't have one already. You can also get that at Reds. Uh, I'm just going to make sure. And you spell that catch them like catch them Idaho. Uh, and yep, we got catch and release tools. They're 20 bucks. Get that thing in a zinger for releasing fish on uh, light line. So the standard one works pretty good. The midge size is better for this. Uh, and you're actually at 20 bucks. Um, but those little tungsten beadhead nymphs, they're pretty expensive. You're going to end up saving a lot of flies and saving money in the long run and saving a few trout. So um, get yourself a catch and release tool on a zinger. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening. Make sure to connect with us on Instagram. Uh, we're Red's Fly Shop on Instagram, Facebook, of course. Uh, Twitter, we, we put some stuff out there as well. Uh, I think that's about it. So, And subscribe to our YouTube channel and also... Um, if you enter promo code PODCAST, uh, you will get 10% off your first order using that promo code. So thanks for listening all the way to the end. So promo code PODCAST, and we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks.